0: You're listening to Policy Speaking. I'm your host, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum, and thank you for tuning in. We are coming to you today from the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee peoples, the Dish With One Spoon Treaty Territory. And if you're not familiar with that, I suggest you look it up because it's... Uh, Very forward-looking, very inspiring, and in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect that we need in our public life today. And you are listening to Policy Speaking. I'm your host, Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum, and thank you for tuning in. Today, we're discussing whether Canada's natural gas can actually contribute to lowering carbon emissions worldwide. It is a counterintuitive concept, but one that some people say is true and one that's being thought about a lot at this moment of an energy security crisis in Europe that ripples through other parts of the world. Germany's chancellor came to Canada last month as part of the global search for new energy supplies. Germany is entering a winter of discomfort. And one in hopes won't become a winter of discontent as it shifts suddenly away from Russian gas. He sees, the German chancellor sees Canada as Germany's new Russia, except a democratic Russia, a Russia more in keeping with the values that uh, that Germany holds to. Does Canada want to be that supplier of choice in the way that uh, the Germans would like? Much of the discussion was about hydrogen. Liquefied natural gas was also discussed, which is a more immediate need, and Germany is building intake facilities for liquefied natural gas. There was um, less of that talk, though, than uh, than some people might have uh, expected. The federal government sounded somewhat ambivalent about LNG, but sort of saying that, is there a business case? You know, we're not sure that there's a business case, at least from the East Coast, So Canada is in a position to help fill gaps in the energy transition as renewables continue to develop, and there's a lot of money to be made. And there's lots of First Nations who have a strong interest in participating in these economic developments. We've explored this at the Public Policy Forum in our recent Energy Future Forum report on natural gas and the blueprint for developing it and why that might make sense. And that can be found on our website. But we also wanted to Talk to some people who would bring perspectives to this. And we have uh, three wonderful interlocutors today around the table with us, Brian Cox, Karen Ogan, taves and Janice Stein to share their thoughts. Brian is the president and CEO of the Canadian LNG Alliance, and he and his team have been working on these issues uh, rather diligently over a number of years. Karen is the CEO of the First Nations LNG Alliance, a society of First Nations that supports responsible LNG development with priority on First Nations engagement and the environment. And Janice Stein, well known to our listeners, is an expert on international relations, perhaps the expert on international relations in Canada. She's a professor and founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Welcome to you three. Thank you for being with us. Great to be with you. Okay, look, I'm going to start out with a question, maybe directed uh, initially to Brian and Janice, and that's to unpack the German Chancellor's visit to Canada. You know, what are your takeaways? What are the main takeaways that Canadians should be drawing from the visit? Brian, why don't you start?
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Ed, and Janice and Karen, it's great to be in this discussion with you today. My name is Brian Cox. I'm speaking to you today from the Lower Mainland of B.C., from the traditional territories of the KC, Cortland, and Samyamu, and other Coast Salish peoples. I think, and we're in a moment in Canada where I think Canadians are ready for a national dialogue on energy. And I think that's really what I see as a takeaway from the German Chancellor's visit. I think, obviously, I'm involved in the world of energy every day, have been for many years talking about the big opportunity that LNG is for our country, for reconciliation, for economic development, for decarbonization, for energy security. These are the the discussions that I live every day, but most Canadians have not been thinking about this. And I think what, what we saw in that discussion leaves a lot of Canadians asking, what is Canada's role in the world here? I think we're, we've are we been traditionally a helper country, a country that has always been there with our resources, whether they're natural resources, whether there's their people and whether they're innovation. And so I think that's truly the moment that we're in. We can obviously lament what we have not done in energy and LNG, and other opportunities to this point, my perspective and my view is that now is our time. And so I think that's really what I would encourage us all to to think about from the chancellor's visit here is that it's time for a national dialogue to get to action. And and so I think that's a lot of the work that obviously you've done with your team and, and the partnership you've done around asking those questions. Now it's time for us to provide the answers and actually come together and solve. So that would be my initial comment, and we can dig into much more of that.
0: Yeah, we'll come back on a couple of those points for sure. Janice, I, I want to turn to you about your takeaways of this uh, rather unusual visit, I think.
2: It was a very unusual visit, and you're quite right. It was really very interesting, because what we in Canada saw was a very grim chancellor, uncharacteristically grim, frankly, for a German chancellor. And He's grim, I think, because he is acutely aware of the economic bind and the political bind that he faces, because frankly, this next winter is a political challenge of the highest order for the leader of a democratic society. And that's really what he's focused on and look to Canada. And I think. Brian got this right, he looks to Canada as a safer, more secure supplier in the future. But here's the big if, if Canada can get it back together and reach some sort of national consensus on what's appropriate, what role Canada is going to play in the energy transition and there were very detailed discussions between our Minister of Natural Resources and, uh, and our can, Jonathan Wilkinson, and the German team that led to this visit. And it was really, do we leapfrog, does Canada leapfrog over the LNG stage? And so we had a signing ceremony in hydrogen, although we're not anywhere near the starting gate yet. But that was a message but I think it's a more profound message to Canadians who are listening. you can't delay uh, any
0: longer. Janice, if I could just follow that for a second, is that a message that the German Chancellor would have wanted to hear, the leapfrog to the future of hydrogen? Or did he want to have more of an LNG message or something in between?
2: I think the German Chancellor very much needs an interim solution and the earliest that we and these are wildly optimistic i think dates frankly that we can begin to supply the german market with hydrogen and brian can correct me here would be 2025 2026 something like that and that's a stretch goal i think he likely will not be chancellor as you know right that's a four-year time period that is an eternity for a political leader. And so that's where I think the grimness came, because he needs two things. He needs a long-term solution, but he needs an interim solution. And I think this is a third takeaway here for Canadians, which is really important. No matter what happens in the Russia-Ukraine war, no matter what the outcome of that is, there is no going back on the part of the Europeans To Russian gas. Their confidence in the security and the reliability of that supply is shattered. And so Mm -hmm. it's not only Germany, it's large parts of Europe, although Germany is the most dependent. And again, as a result of strategic decisions, some quite bad ones that they made over the last decade, but they have made themselves completely vulnerable to Russian supply, and they will never do that again. So there was grimness, but there's also determination.
0: Karen, as the um, CEO of the First Nations LNG Alliance, you know what did you see in this visit that was either encouraging or discouraging for you?
3: Well, one is that Germany has come to Canada to seek some aid with LNG. That was a positive because I think we're in a good position to do that. What I didn't like is how the message back to him was that we need a better business case. And just from my perspective, I'm not an expert in economics by any means, but I think it just makes perfect sense that, you know, if Canada's heading into this recession, selling our LNG to Germany and the other European countries just makes perfect sense all the way around, not only for Canada, but for the provinces that will be selling it, but to the indigenous. People as well that are on the lines that would have equity ownership and it would build our economy. So, I don't know what more of a business case you need. It just, for me, it's common sense. We should do this in a really sustainable way and it's a win, win, win across the board.
0: Well, look, the, your alliance you know, speaks about uh, LNG and it also speaks about the environment. And Are those reconcilable in your mind and more so in the mind of the communities that you're representing?
3: Well, I think that when we think about the environment, LNG is one of the cleaner fossil fuels. And, you know, when we look at it from that perspective, I think that that's one of the biggest concerns that Indigenous people have, because if we're viewed as the stewards of the land, then the environmental issues would certainly come into play. We must say The highest environmental standards are what we seek. And so when we look at selling our LNG and, you know, getting Germany off of coal, to me, we're looking more at the global issues, the the global GHG emissions. So I think that it's a win-win in that perspective. And I think that, you know, Canada is in a very good geographical position from what I can see because it's a shorter distance from Canada to Europe and even to Asia. So we're in a very good position to do this, a country rich in natural resources and having the support of Indigenous people, especially with the highest environmental standards. We can't go wrong. So it seems to me that the doors are wide open. Canada just needs to walk through them. Can
0: you help our listeners just understand one thing when you say, you know, with the support of Indigenous communities? So through the media... I think many people have the impression that First Nations are opposed to this kind of energy development. I guess you're suggesting otherwise. Can you just explain a little bit the tension protests on a coastal gas line, then equity investments in a coastal gas line? Now, it's not incumbent upon any group of people living in Canada, and particularly, you know, original settlers of Canada, you know, speak with one voice, obviously. But, which is the prevalent voice?
3: Well, from my perspective, the 21st Nations that have signed on to Coastal GasLink, even though it's under a system that's been imposed upon us, the Indian Act, it's the only system that majority of nations are under, unless you go to a modern day treaty, which the 21st Nations haven't pursued that yet. Some may be in discussion, but you know we're under this. I don't even want to like the what the Indian Act does for us. It's a system that we have to work within right now. And is it the best one? No, but it's the only governing system that we have as we speak. And I think that whether these are councils, chief and councils, a lot of the responsibility is to look after the people and a shared responsibility with the hereditary chiefs of looking after the people and the land. So when we think about those two things, it's all of our responsibility to be looking after the people and to the land. And until we get to that place, there's going to be some friction. There's going to be opposition. And from my perspective, being a with Wet'suwet'en woman, I think it's really important that the Wet'suwet'en resolve their internal issues and come with one voice because the majority of the Wet'suwet'en people support employment. They support ensuring that we have highest environmental standards. They support bringing jobs and procurement opportunities to our nations. It's just a small faction of Wet'suwet'en people that are saying no. And like I say, it's an internal issue that needs to be resolved. But nevertheless, there are 20 First Nations that support LNG. And I think that speaks volumes.
0: Okay. Brian, Janice already mentioned, and I want you to dig a little deeper into, you know, two impediments that have been identified and identified, you know, around this visit as well. One is, is there a business case in Atlantic Canada? And the second is the time it takes. Are we, you know, you're going to miss the window of Germany's need and Europe's need? Maybe you could explain those for us because they both seem to be in some way inhibitors to moving ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, happy to do that. I think Janice actually mentioned a couple of things that I think are really relevant to that. One is the leapfrog to to hydrogen, and two is the Russian gas question. And So I think that's what's been a barrier in the dialogue on LNG since the beginning is this whole idea of Oh, don't build it because you're not going to need it in five years. Natural gas is on its way out. You know, these are massive infrastructure projects. You're not going to require it. And so it's, you know, you shouldn't build it. And I think it, it goes to this question we're having in Canada. Always. And I think our dialogue always focused around being the country of the future rather than the country of now. And so the investments in those companies are going to invest in in LNG. They make the decisions to do that and they do it based upon good, sound data. So of course, there's a business case to get our LNG to parts of the world that need it. And I think let's expand that, not from just Atlantic Canada, but obviously off the West Coast of Canada. And I think that's the longer term discussion. The more LNG we can get off the West Coast as well, and uh, helps with energy security globally, and in fact helps with Europe's issues uh, into the future. And again, back to that Russian gas question, because there's a whole bunch of Russian gas, you even look at the IEA's modeling on their net zero, they have a, a huge amount of Russian gas baked into that scenario up to 2050. Well, imagine if Canada, actually provides that gas instead because to Janice's point, that system is fundamentally changed and so Canada does have a role to play. So yes, we have infrastructure that we need to build off of both coasts and off Atlantic Canada, but truly the needs for natural gas in Europe will be for years and years and years. Our projects you know, are the most responsible, lowest emission. We have high ESG metrics, to Karen's point, around Indigenous. So the business case is there. We just need as a country to get behind it and step forward and say, yeah, we're the country that's going to
0: help you out.
2: Just on this point, I think it's worthwhile thinking for a moment about how energy markets are reshaping themselves. So even as we think about the next five years, we're seeing you know a really crunchy realignment of energy markets in real time right now. As a result, you know, to just take two examples, we have a barter system in effect between Russia and Iran. The Chinese and the Russians have signed bilateral agreements for China, has picked up the slack in Russian exports and went to Europe. They're now going to China at a discounted price. Iranian oil is about to come back, by the way, onto the global market if this agreement proceeds. But we're really seeing, and it's quite interesting, these are non-dollar denominated exports. So we're seeing almost a second energy market grow up, at in Europe, which is long-lasting. It's not going to switch back. And so we can't think only about Germany's needs or Europe's needs. We have to think about the economies in Asia who may buy from both, but prefer actually not to buy only from China or others right now because it makes them so vulnerable. They've seen what's happened to the Europeans when they are overwhelmingly reliant on one supplier. So I think we have to change the way we think about global energy markets over oh, the Jan- next Janice, five to ten years.
0: I think this is a superbly important point. Canada is a supporter of democracy around the world. Canada is a joiner of organizations, yep. including including NATO. When Ukraine was, you know, viciously attacked, you know, Canada has stood up unequivocally. But here there's equivocation. And perhaps it's the first time that climate policy and global security policy have come into uh, tension with one another. How are we going to balance that?
2: I think you're right that there's tensions and but I don't think it's on energy policy alone. I think it's on many issues. It's on food exports. It's on, you know, pulse exports, wheat exports. There's a whole series of things that Canada sells into global markets. And we, as a small country, I'm one of those who calls us a small country, we're going to have to make decisions, and they're tough decisions, especially for us because we live next to the United States, about how we can weave... As much freedom of maneuver to continue to sell into global markets, things that Canadians are very good at, at the same time as we acknowledge that they are changing security parameters. So right now, if you look at this triangle that we have going, China's buying Russian oil. As a result of China buying Russian oil at a discounted price, India is finding it harder <laughs> because it was a customer, too. It's looking for new suppliers. Well, it's easier to sell to India than it is to China or to Russia in the current global security environment. I mean, this is an economic analysis, more than a political science-y one. There's only so much energy on the market. And when one supplier drops out, somebody else moves in to fill the breach. And that's how I think we have to think about this. But you're right now that there is a premium as the world divides now into these two different markets, because that's what what we're seeing with a whole bunch of fence-sitters in the middle, largely in Asia and Africa. But as this happens, there's going to be a premium in
0: each market for friendly suppliers. That's really what we're seeing. Karen, I want to come back home for a minute. And there's many, as you're saying, many First Nations that are involved in projects. Some of these are very advanced, particularly the Haiza Nation And you know what it's uh, doing in Kitimat, the Squamish Nation, what is beginning to uh, unfold in that part of uh, British Columbia. Maybe just tell us, you know, what some of these activities are, how significant they feel to you, and indeed, if representatives from other countries are coming to talk to your nations.
3: Well, I think that in the 1950s, First Nations weren't even part of the table or discussions, and now we are. So that makes a huge difference, not only to our communities economically, but also environmentally. And I think for the most part, you know, because a lot of our our communities are impoverished, it just makes perfect sense for us to sort of look at how are we going to build our economy within our community? And I, I think that by the equity ownership, by the procurement opportunities, that's our business case for our First Nations. And the whole notion of On Drip and FPIC, all of those pieces come into play. I think it just makes perfect sense for us to be a part of these major projects and to promote them and also talk about how this impacts the environment, both good and bad, and how we can make them responsible. I think that that's really important. You know, you're seeing more nations like the Heisla, Squamish, and then we have the Nishka Nation that's discussing their LNG project. So it's something that, that has set the stage for other nations to look at doing major projects responsibly and how it impacts not only our economy, but the provinces and Canada and, and how we're helping other countries, whether it be Asia or European countries. So I think just Looking at it from the micro to the macro level, I think that's important for us. But building things at home economically and environmentally are, are sort of our two drivers. And I think those are really critically important to us.
0: But how do you weigh? You know, I don't want to take a particular First Nation, but the highs, of course, are probably most advanced in terms of uh, where they are on, on their project, I think at very late feasibility studies, but with a, a very solid idea of what is to be done and costing of it, uh, et cetera. How do people balance the belief in sustainability with energy projects of this sort, fossil fuel projects, and whether they're investing in industries that are sunsetting?
3: I think the whole piece on sustainability, when I looked at that, you know, because we kind of try to keep our, our hand on a pulse about what's happening in, in other countries. I think you hear the Glasgow outcomes where they're talking about Asia still needing to get off of coal and replace it with LNG. Well, that keeps us relevant. And I think if we're able to bring the global greenhouse gas emissions down by selling our LNG to these countries to get them off of coal, I think for me, that's a part of sustainability, and I think that there's other sorts of means where we talk about the energy transitions, like how do we fit into all of that? I think as we go each step of the way, I think that there's more involvement, more discussions with our communities on how what that's going to look like, and I think and how we're going to contribute to that in relation to the investing piece I think. That's the part where we need to do our jobs and say, yes, we're open to that. There's not enough voices saying, yes, we are into being part of these major discussions with major projects and the whole notion of equity ownership and procurement opportunities, direct award opportunities, what that means to employment and training on the ground and how that builds our our community's economy. So I think those are things that need to be brought to the forefront. We need Probably the voices of the Indigenous communities and nations and organizations that are are seeing this, we need their voice. We need a coalition of the Indigenous business folks and, and the environmental people and even the political people to say, yes, we're open for this and how it's going to impact our Indigenous communities.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Brian, uh, Karen talked about um, coal to gas switching. I guess there, you know, if you look at North America, if you look at, you know, the United States and the progress that it's made, uh, almost all about progress has, has come from moving from coal to gas. If you look at the province of Ontario and the progress that it made moving from coal to gas and renewables, if you look at what Alberta's been doing in recent years, it's also gotten off coal and that. Is there, and I want Janice you to weigh in on that too, is there a kind of Canadian program here to take that to the world? You know, that's something that's discussed in the PPF uh, report on gas. Is this a mission that Canada should have to make for a better world? Take this uh, coal to gas switching that we've done at home and bring it to other countries?
1: Yes. Yes, it's absolutely something we should do. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things we saw in the Chancellor's visit to Canada is showing jurisdictions that have uh, limited their pathways. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the results of that right now. We need multiple pathways out there and energy solutions. There's vast parts of the world, particularly in Asia that are just looking to get baseline energy security, right? We're not talking about all the bells and whistles. They just are looking for energy. And so what is it? That's what the role that natural gas plays across so many different parts of our economy. We don't really think about it, but natural gas is applicable in so many different ways, but particularly in that coal to gas switching. It's just a step change in emissions. And I think what's required in Canada is for us to, is to uh, obviously focus on the local, but get that global hat on again to say that we can actually make massive global contributions to a better, more sustainable or empowered world by providing our responsible resources. And, and, you know, I was part of the work with the BC Business Council, who I know you partner with on a low carbon industrial strategy. So multiple sectors got together: mining, forestry, natural gas, agriculture, and others. And we actually did and put data together showing that using our low emission electricity grid in British Columbia, again, our advantage in Canada, we have almost 98%, 99% hydroelectricity, but using that, that's actually an advantage to us producing lowest emission commodities already. So the fact that our natural gas is already step changes lower emission than even any other natural gas on the market provides that coal to gas switching even more so. so. Longer answer to your question, but yes, this is Canada's role is to step out and be that helper nation.
2: I can just add to what Brian just said. I live in the city of Toronto and I'm a huge personal beneficiary of the coal to gas switch because the smog in this city is virtually gone as a result of that switch. So if you compare the kind of pollution that was almost a, a routine experience a decade and a half ago, it's gone Um, Now, take that to Delhi (laughs) or to Beijing, which is far worse. And both those countries are refiring coal plants as a result of the energy crisis right now. So if we're talking about climate, we have had, this is a very bad year for climate. People have been driven back because they did not expect this kind of acute crisis, and they thought the transition process would be a glide (laughs) and they could glide forward. Well, that's not what's happened. They're falling off the edge of the cliff. And so with no alternative, no plans in place, they're just refiring coal plants. Now, anybody who looks at that challenge from an economic perspective and from an environmental perspective knows that LNG is a far superior alternative to coal. Where does this debate really heat up? And you talked about it at is this a sunsetting industry? Is this just a step along the way to something better? And why should we invest in a step along the way? That's really the debate. And that's the debate you heard when the German chancellor was here. And I think the answer to this is we have to be realistic about how long this transition is gonna take. It is not fast. And I have not seen a single forecast that said this transition to net zero is less than two decades. And I think even that may be optimistic. So every step level where we can improve performance is again, especially in countries like China and India with huge populations, where the amount of coal that is gonna be used is going to probably defeat any chance of them meeting their climate targets just from a year if they continue along this path for a year or two. And let me throw one other issue into the mix, which is interesting to think about because when Brian was talking about the the advantages of LNG, you know, we can think about a whole set of industries and sectors as you just did, Brian, in which the benefits both environmental and economic would be real. But one we don't talk about enough is a whole digital sector, which is a huge consumer of energy. If we think about crypto, and the cost of mining and big servers (laughs) that are actually not in the cloud. They're on the ground somewhere and extremely energy inefficient in the way that these are run. Digital doesn't solve these problems. You hear some of this from from Chinese experts. Well, we are moving to a totally digital economy, and therefore we're going to bring our energy requirements under control. I think that's not accurate. And so we have to have a 30-year horizon here, which is real. And it's hard to think about a sunsetting industry or sunsetting sector when you've got a 30-year horizon.
0: I just want to stay with our relations with the world for a moment and, you know, something that you've studied for so many years, Janice. And I think I read a quote several weeks ago from a politician in another country sort of basically accusing Canada of hoarding our resources. Now, we've been a resource provider, you know, to much of the world, to our benefit for you know hundreds of years. And I just wonder how the world sees us in that regard, how they might see our responsibility, given the various crises in the world and, and the various desire to, as you say, not be dependent on countries who will use that as geopolitical leverage against you. You know, do we have a responsibility as a large country with a small population? And blessed with many resources, do we have a responsibility or not? You know, I think
2: that's a a really great question, Ed, because I think that that question is going to be asked of us. (laughs) It's not a question we're going to have to ask ourselves, but I think that question is going to be asked of us with increasing frequency by the United States, who is in a burden sharing mode. As it straddles Europe and Asia, I was hoping to pivot entirely to Asia. That one's not likely for the next five to ten years, it's going to have to have an eye on Europe all the time. And it's looking for partners everywhere it can have them. Now, where did we get this reputation of hoarder, which I think is unjustified, frankly? We didn't hoard. We could not reach an internal consensus on what we wanted to do with our resources. I think we're fractured rather than hoarding. And we've also sold overwhelmingly into one market, as you know well. It's the easy one. It's closed. So in a way, we have not been a significant global supplier of energy. We sell into the U.S. market and it gets repurposed sometimes and re-exported, but it's done through the United States. So I think there's going to be a discussion sooner rather than later. And a lot depends on what happens in U.S. politics, of course. But just like we are being asked, what role are you going to play in NATO? Okay, we put up our hand for Latvia. The question is going to be asked: what role are you going to play in securing the energy supply for our friends and allies? Because what we've really seen, and you know, this is not new in world politics. In 1973, there was an oil embargo led but largely by Arab countries for political reasons, for strategic reasons. So weaponization of energy is not new, but we are seeing it now at a global scale that we've not seen really in 40 years. And let me draw the parallel. Who would have thought Canada would lead in the sanctioning of the Russian Central Bank So, we weaponized our financial system? It's naive to think that we're not weaponizing energy over this next decade.
0: Brent, I want you also to weigh in. I'm gonna ask Karen as well in a moment about responsibility to each other within a country, within a world, and also being aware of what's going on elsewhere in the world. In your case, I really want to ask you about the um inflation act of the states, uh, which is really a climate act and 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 the effects that will have, even on even in hydrogen, and you know, the effect that would be that it's platform neutral to hydrogen. Maybe you could, you know, walk people that through. Is there a connection between gas and hydrogen? Are they competitive or are they complementary?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a great question, Ed. And I think it goes back to the interconnectivity of our energy systems and the fact that we need these multiple pathways. And that capital flow is not linear; it doesn't just flow to one particular commodity or technology, it flows to one, to the other, to the other, to the other. And absolutely, and I think that was another thing we saw in in the visit of the Chancellor, is that that was an opportunity to talk about, you know, I always talk about the concept of yes and. This was a yes and moment for us to talk about LNG and hydrogen together as an opportunity for Canada, because one can help get to the other. LNG is the now and into the future, and hydrogen is uh, a fuel that's got a huge opportunity for the world. Natural gas is a massive role to play with hydrogen. But,
0: but but the preference was to talk about hydrogen with the word well, green in front of it. it. Exactly. And
1: I think that's a huge takeaway for, But uh, again, what I said earlier about our, our inability, really, in Canada to wrap our arms around the now. We're consistently talking about the future. And I, that's why I look at LNG and natural gas as an investment. That's the investments that get you to the next, now to next. We see it in LNG right now. Karen just talked about it. The investment in LNG Canada is what gets to the investments in Cedar LNG. So the fact that Heisla got involved with LNG Canada got them to the point of being able to get involved with Cedar LNG. So all along the spectrum, investing in the now continues to move us forward. So you touched upon what's happening in the United States and Janice did as well. This provides a massive opportunity for a North American strategy on energy. And I think hydrogen is at the core of it, but natural gas is truly an an accelerator to the outcomes that we want to get to. And so I think that's the dialogue that we we need to have as a country. And like Janice said, we're incredibly fractured and polarized right now. And so we can keep coming at each other with our solutions, or we can find the space to actually find the resonance and the harmony amongst the different commodity types. And and I see natural gas, LNG, and hydrogen as having huge synergies from an investment and from an energy transformation point of view.
0: Karen, let me end with you. First Nations are sitting on a lot of gas. The lands, transportation off the coast, this is First Nations territories. To what extent are you looking at this as an opportunity? And to what extent do you feel a sense of responsibility?
3: I think I try to keep, my messaging simple. And when I heard the term Canada is hoarding resources, from an Indigenous perspective, that's not our way. Our way is to help and to assist and to give. So it just makes perfect sense. If somebody's asking us for help, then we help. There's nothing that should hold us back from doing that. That's just our way within our communities, within our traditional systems. That's what we do. So I think if Canada really wants to bring the Indigenous people and voice to the table, then that's something that would lend to Canada's voice is saying, from an Indigenous perspective, this is what we do, and we're in a position to help, so let's help those other countries. So that's a simple message that I'd like to bring forward, and I think that you know, it's been a long time coming for Canada to finally come to Indigenous people. Like How many years has it taken for us to get to the table? And now we're here. I think that there needs to be a heavy Indigenous voice across the board, whether it be locally, provincially, nationally, and internationally. Our voice needs to be loud and clear. We're here to help.
0: Do you have a sense, uh, do you have a feeling, uh, a fear ever that uh, just as you get to the table, the table might be taken away?
3: Well, they're pulling the table away from us and we're like saying, no, we're here. We're here to stay. Our voice is important. We need to continue to keep that consistency and keep that dialogue happening and making sure that our voice is heard, that we're included and what we say is important.
0: Okay. That was a tremendous discussion, but I can't quite let you off the hook yet. Policy speaking is uh, as in our continuing desire to be of service and of help ourselves to our listeners is trying to put together a reading list from our guests of a book that you've read recently, or that you think should be reread again, that might help people understand uh, the issues we're talking about or other issues out there in the world. So I wonder if you would share a book you think people should turn to at this point in time as the world around us evolves. Janice Stein.
2: Okay, you did not tell me you were going to ask me this, so let me violate. Brian's advice and not stay in the now, but go out into the future. I read a fantastic book that is so way out. It's called reality plus. And it is just a mind. It's by David Chalmers, who's a philosopher and you might know his name because he studied consciousness, right? And what is consciousness? And he's written this book, I mean, it a mind-bending book about virtual reality, what's coming, where we're going to be, where we're going to live. And by the way, huge energy requirements, Brian, in a virtual reality world too. And that's why I brought that up. We don't tend to think about it. How could that be? But it really is. And then really cycle back to what does that tell us about? is what's, you know, is my phone that's in my hand all the time, part of me, my body, controlled by my mind? Uh, How do we think about these issues and about responsibility? So of all the things I've read in the last year, that one just took me furthest away from what I think about every day. And if there's a summer weekend left,
3: I would say read that one.
0: Well, I suggest should we should read it even until the fall.
3: Oh, Um, Karen. Well, there's a couple of books on my mind, but one that sort of stands out because it sort of helped me to educate myself on the natural resources in Canada was from the late Jim Prentice titled Triple Crown. And I read that book and I I, I would present it, bring it to presentations with me and tell people you need to read this. And so after having read that, I thought, well, we need to move on To a book that would, I can't think of a title right now, but the next book should be written by Indigenous people about what the impacts of Triple Crown and how we've managed to be a part of these major projects going throughout Canada and how we need to promote them. So I think that's where my head is thinking is that somebody needs to write a sequel to Triple Crown and what Indigenous people and organizations, businesses, leadership have done in relation to UNDRIP, economic reconciliation, all of those pieces. And the other book that I wanted to promote was Weaving Two Worlds, the economic reconciliation between Indigenous peoples and the resource sector written by Michael McPhee and Christy Smith. So I'll leave you with that. Merci.
0: Okay. Well, I'll say about Triple Crown that I got shivers down my spine when, uh, uh, when you mentioned it's a terrific book. And my last conversation with Jim Prentice was uh, him phoning to tell me about his book and to see if the Public Policy Forum would uh, would help um, set up a couple of uh, discussions across Canada about the book. And then he tragically passed away, uh, died in that crash about uh, a week later. And uh, we did do that, uh, but um, a great loss for Canada. Brian? I'm feeling very uh, uh, sobered up and sad. Perhaps you can give us an uplifting <laughs> yeah. book.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it is a great book, and, and both of the books, Karen referenced, for are fantastic. And Janice, I'm going to go get that book. That sounds really interesting. So I'll, maybe I'll go to the past for my recommendation of a book that I recently read that took me a long time to read. So it's not not easy one to get through because it's long. But it's the biography of Harry Truman by David McCullough, and it's yeah. it's not a recent book; it's an older book. But I, I mention it because when I read that book, it was just really stark about, you know, you know Harry Truman, and his story, but, but the time that he was in and the solutions that are needed that I see very similar to where we are right now, the post world war II structure that was created during those years by those bilateral meetings and, and all and the energy world and the hydrogen bombs and nuclear, like those were big, big things. And I, but as I read it, I thought, wow, we're in a similar stage where the world is reordering itself and mm-hmm. we're going to need brave Visionary leaders to step forward and make brave decisions. And so I recommend that book because it gives you a really good insight into some of the the rooms and decisions that were made in those days that we've benefited from greatly over the last 70 years. And, And it's time for new,
0: brave, visionary decisions. The Leadership of Common Sense. Thank you all so much for uh, for your book recommendations, of course, but uh, for insightful, illuminating conversation. And we hope we'll have a chance to talk to you again, Janice, Brian, Karen. We really appreciate your time today.
2: Thank you. It was a great pleasure.
0: As part of our podcast, we like to do a shout out to one of our members each week. And this week, we want to say how PPF proud we are of the University of Ottawa for appointing the first Indigenous leader as Chancellor in its 174 year history, Claudette Kamanda. Ms. Kamanda, an Algonquin Anishinaabe from the Kitty Gan Anishinabeg First Nation, is well known to PPF, having delivered a traditional opening prayer at several of our events over the years. So we're particularly delighted that Claudette will be beginning her term as Chancellor in November and um, she'll be a great chancellor for the University of Ottawa. During her own studies at the U of O, Ms. Kamanda founded a First Nation Student Association to improve representation on campus and establish an indigenous resource center. So again, congratulations to the U of O and congratulations to Claudette Commanda on her appointment as chancellor. And that's a wrap for this edition of Policy Speaking. We have some interesting discussions coming up over the next few weeks. So please continue to tune in. We would be delighted if you share this episode with a friend. And feel free to leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Feel free to get in touch with us with any ideas you may have for Policy Speaking. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.